Good afternoon, everybody. Can, can anybody hear me? It's usually can the people in the back row hear me, and I'm not saying anything, so. Good, it works. Somebody in the back row can hear me. Uh, um, welcome to Grand Rounds and to those listening on the remote sites as well. Um, we hope this is going to be a great presentation. I'm sure it will be. Um, I'm delighted to, to introduce to you Meredith Morgan uh, from, from Michigan. She's in the Department of Radiation Oncology in Michigan. Uh, she got a PhD in West Virginia. I, I remember it. Um, and then she moved up to, um, to Michigan first as a, as a fellow in radiation oncology, and, and she's been an assistant professor there since about 2009. She's got her own R01 funding. Uh, she's a part of a SPORE grant. She's published about 47 papers or something so far. Um, and I got to know her actually through her research some years ago, uh, when she started publishing on gemcitabine and CHECK1 inhibitors, which was rather too close to what we were doing. So, <laughs> so I thought I should let you hear the truth from her as opposed to listening to, to our research. Um, so that's what she's, well, she's actually done a lot of work on chemoradiation, and I'm not exactly sure which agent she's going to be using targeting DNA damage responses here, but we'll find out. She studied we one inhibitors, CHECK1 inhibitors, PARP inhibitors. Now she's studying going off in a, um, a new area, FBX, W7, cullin ligases, and DNA damage responses. Okay, now to the business stuff. They make you read, um, she does not have any financial interests, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of product or device. She's not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And for those who want CME credit, you will know how to do it. Please use the activity code displayed outside this room after the presentation. And with that, Meredith, thanks for visiting. Okay, can you hear me? That working? Yes, in the back. Okay. So thank you, Alan, for the uh, invitation and the kind introduction. Uh, so I had the pleasure, and thank you all for coming. I had the pleasure of hearing Alan speak at a DNA repair conference this past fall, and I was amused with how he began his presentation, which was uh, by stating, I'll say PARP once during this talk, and that was it. <laughs> so unlike Alan, I have kind of gotten on the PARP inhibitor bandwagon, and I'll tell you a little bit about those studies today. Um, Let's see, I actually am going to discuss investigational use of AZD 1775. Uh, and the overall theme for my talk today um, is that we can exploit the DNA damage response as a promising strategy for therapy in pancreatic cancers. And specifically, I'm going to share with you um, our data, both preclinical and clinical, combining a WE1 inhibitor with chemoradiation. Um, I'm going to diverge for a little bit and talk about some revealing mechanistic studies uh, that were actually performed in KRAS mutant lung cancer that got us more focused on DNA replication stress. Um, and those studies have really informed our current and ongoing uh, efforts in treating homologous recombination repair defective pancreatic cancer. 
uh, with a combination of ATR and PARP inhibitors. So there's a, a little bit of, of several kinds of DNA damage response inhibitors in this talk, and even a little check one. <clears throat> so uh, locally advanced pancreatic cancer is, is our main disease of interest. And this is characterized as surgically unresectable, not overtly metastatic disease. And I emphasize the not overtly metastatic because the vast majority of these patients are thought to have occult microscopic disease even at the time of their local diagnosis. So this means to us that we have to be aware of both uh, systemic and local disease in this patient population. Um, despite advancements in the uh, chemotherapies for metastatic disease, gemcitabine or 5-fluorouracil-based chemoradiation is the standard of care uh, in locally advanced pancreatic cancer, and that is associated with a median survival of approximately one year. Uh, chemotherapy alone is uh, inadequate to control local pancreatic tumors. Uh, and we know that local control is important because up to a third of these patients uh, even in some cases, patients with uh, metastatic disease die as a result of local disease progression. If we add radiation therapy uh, uh, to chemotherapy, it improves local control and it improves survival in these patients. Um, and so the, the overarching goal of my research uh, for many years now has been to try to sensitize pancreatic tumors um, both systemically and locally through chemo and, and radio sensitization, um, and ultimately to try to improve survival in this patient population by using targeted agents. And our strategy has been, um, since we know that DNA double-strand breaks are the lethal lesions that kill cells in response to chemo radiation, to target the DNA damage response. And so the DNA damage response, um, as I see it, is divided into uh, three distinct but related cellular processes, the first of which uh, involves DNA damage-induced cell cycle checkpoints. Um, so in response to DNA damage, um, the apical kinases ATM and ATR are activated. This initiates a signaling cascade, activating check one and check two, causing degradation of the CDC25 phosphatase, and ultimately rendering the cyclin CDK uh, complexes bound by inhibitory phosphorylations that are catalyzed by the We1 kinase, um, and ultimately causing arrest either within S phase or at the G2 checkpoint, which permits time for DNA repair and prevents propagation of cells with a damaged DNA template. So the other part of the DNA damage response is the actual process of DNA repair. And so homologous recombination and non-homologous end joining are the two major DNA double-strand break repair pathways. Um, these are carried out by a set of core proteins. Um, our laboratory does, does quite a bit of work on non-homologous end joining, but you don't have to worry about that pathway for today. <coughs> Uh, what's most relevant for my talk today is homologous recombination repair, um, and some of the core proteins within HR, BRCA2 and RAD51, and then we also know that some of the um, proteins that are more typically thought to be involved in cell cycle checkpoints also indirectly regulate homologous recombination repair. 
and then finally, I'll talk a little bit about PARP inhibitors today. Well, actually, um, more than a little bit. Um, and they also have a role in DNA single strand or, or base excision repair. And then the, the third part of the DNA damage response, which I think is, is a more emerging um, uh, pro cellular process that is carried out by a lot of these uh, DNA damage response proteins, is in regulating DNA replication and in uh, managing DNA replication stress in cells. Uh, so, for example, we know that the WE1 kinase, through its re regulation of cyclin-dependent kinases, prevents untimely origin of DNA replications, uh, sorry, prevents untimely firing of DNA replication origins. Uh, we know that proteins like ATR and CHECK1 um, stabilize stalled replication forks. Uh, we also know that proteins involved in homologous recombination, as well as PARP1, have functions in stabilizing stalled replication forks and promoting restart of these stalled forks. And collectively, um, these proteins work together to prevent fork collapse following replication stress, which forms a particularly lethal uh, type of DNA double-strand break. So um, we began our studies uh, in, the, in the area of the DNA damage response about 10 years ago. And at that time, we were very interested in, you know, first of all, we thought that the G2 checkpoint was really the critical <clears throat> target. And we were, um, at the time, working with CHECK1 inhibitors. And I still think CHECK1 is a really great target. <clears throat> so um, the first drug that, that we were able to acquire was this AstraZeneca compound 7762. Um, and we did a pretty extensive preclinical um, investigation of this agent. Um, we showed, and I'll just summarize several years' worth of work here, that it abrogated the G2 checkpoint and it radiosensitized cells. Um, you know, kind of beginning to move away from that idea that the G2 checkpoint was the main target, we showed that also inhibition of homologous recombination repair was involved in its ability to sensitize to radiation. We showed in, in tumor models that it could enhance uh, tumor sensitivity to standard of care chemoradiation. Uh, those were pancreatic cancer models. Uh, we identified a biomarker that would allow us to um, assess pharmacodynamic effects and, and to know we were hitting the target. We could combine with a PARF inhibitor to potentiate the effect. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and unfortunately, as we were designing uh, the clinical trial, designing our own clinical trial, um, <coughs> that was at the time that the, the company sponsored phase one, just combining the drug with gemcitabine, no radiation had just finished, and, and that study concluded that there was um, some cardiac, at the time thought to be off-target, cardiac toxicity associated with 7762, and so the drug was discontinued. So we very quickly moved on to another uh, CHECK1 inhibitor that was available at the time. This was a Merck agent, MK8776. Again, we went back, we repeated a lot of the key preclinical studies, showed it sensitized to gemcitabine and to radiation, 
Um, we added studies this time to show that it did have tumor self-selective uh, uh, ability to sensitize to chemo radiation. Um, unfortunately, as we got ready to go to a clinical trial, that drug was also discontinued. I think this is a lesson in be careful when you work with pharma. This time it was not for any scientific reason. The drug was discontinued because Merck, as Alan reminded me last night, became interested in immuno-oncology agents. Um, and so it was just deprioritized to the point that it was no longer available to us. So then there was WE1 and the uh, AstraZeneca drug AZD1775. And so this was a um, selective WE1 kinase inhibitor. Um, if you remember the signaling diagrams I showed you, WE1 and CHECK1 are in a similar pathway. And so we reasoned that this would be a, a good alternative for a, a CHECK1 inhibitor to potentially take to a clinical trial. Um, it had decent pharmacokinetic properties. Um, and just was, as we uh, acquired the drug, that was when it was finishing <clears throat> the company-sponsored phase one, combining it with gemcitabine, um, which, which you'll see that that was information that helped us in terms of dosing and scheduling uh, to move it into our own clinical trial. <clears throat> so for a third time, we went back, we repeated key preclinical data to show that this agent sensitized in our pancreatic cancer models to gemcitabine and to gemcitabine radiation. And I'm showing you an example of those data here. Over here on the left, this is a uh, pancreatic cancer cell line that we commonly work with. Um, if we pulse those cells with gemcitabine and then 24 hours later add the WE1 kinase inhibitor and look at survival, um, you can see with gemcitabine alone, this is the concentration response we get. And when we add the WE1 inhibitor to the gemcitabine, we shift that curve. So we effectively sensitize the pancreatic cancer cells to, to chemotherapy, um, which we're, you know, for, for most of these studies, we're trying to simultaneously sensitize to chemo, which would, you know, potentially have a systemic disease benefit, and to sensitize to chemo radiation to help control the local tumor. Um, so over on the right is our radiosensitization effect. So control uh, shows the survival, uh, sorry, the white line is the survival of cells treated with radiation alone. Um, the most important control here is in green. This is the gemcitabine radiation or standard of care. And when we add the WE1 inhibitor uh, to the gemcitabine radiation, we, we shift that curve. And this actually produces a radiation enhancement ratio of 2.1, um, which in the radiation biology field is, is a pretty uh, significant, uh, biologically meaningful radiation enhancement ratio. Um, so as we tried to progress to a clinical trial, we very quickly um, moved into in vivo models. Um, and what we did here was to use a, a patient, pancreatic patient-derived xenograph. So these were derived from uh, surgically recepted pancreatic cancer patients. Um, and you can see if, if we treated, uh, we used the schedule that was similar to um, the schedule that was being done combining gemcitabine with AZD1775, uh, giving uh, the gemcitabine and, and AZD1775 um, before radiation on the first day of, of week one, um, and then again with the AZD1775 on day two to sort of cover the, the gemcitabine dose. Um, and then fractionated radiation. 
Um, so the white line is radiation alone. This is just tumor growth radiation alone. Green is gemcitabine with radiation. And then here's our combination with the V1 inhibitor. Uh, so we significantly delayed tumor growth, and that uh, corresponded to a 12-day delay in tumor volume doubling there. Um, so that looked, re looked reasonable. We also, in this study, followed up on some of the other mechanistic studies that had been ongoing in the lab, showing that inhibition of homologous recombination repair was um, an associated mechanism. Um, and so for this, we looked at RAD51 foci, which is an intermediate in homologous recombination repair. We looked at this in our tumor uh, xenografts. You can see that um, homologous recombination repair is activated when we treat with gemcitabine or gemcitabine in combination with radiation, and that AZD1775 inhibits uh, homologous recombination repair in vivo here. So on the basis of um, those preclinical data and, and a couple of other pieces of data that I summarize here, um, I think the one that I didn't mention is that we had found that the sensitization to chemo radiation um, was uh, dependent on this inhibition of homologous recombination uh, repair. But you know, sort of prior to our, our prior uh, previous logic, uh, was independent of, of the G2 checkpoint. Um, so on the basis of uh, these preclinical data, um, as well as, you know, a lot of work that we had done with the CHECK1 inhibitor, uh, we designed a clinical trial combining AZD1775 with gemcitabine and radiation for locally advanced pancreatic cancer. Uh, so this is a 36-patient trial. Um, the primary objective was to determine toxicity and a target dose for the WE1 inhibitor. Uh, the secondary objectives were to begin to evaluate efficacy and to establish pharmacodynamic biomarkers in surrogate tissues. Um, building on what we knew from the company-sponsored phase one, we gave gemcitabine um, on days one and eight of a 21-day cycle, and the WE1 inhibitor was incorporated on days one and two, eight and nine. Uh, radiation was given during cycles two and three in 2.1 gray fractions to 52.5 gray. And we took skin punch biopsies on either the uh, first day of the first or second cycle in order to assess our pharmacodynamic endpoints. And so um, the predetermined endpoint for success in this trial that we had agreed upon with AstraZeneca would be a 50% increase in median overall survival, um, which historical median overall survival in this patient population is 12 months. So we were, you know, sort of, if we got to 18-month median overall survival, that would be a signal to progress to a next uh, clinical study. This is preliminary, but we have accrued 25 patients to date. So the it is maturing, um, and our preliminary overall survival estimates are very promising. So we're at 24.5 months median survival right now, um, you know, which is which is double um, uh, compared to historical controls um, that were actually coming from patients treated um, uh, on the same gemcitabine radiation clinical protocol, uh, minus the WE1 inhibitor uh, at our institution. So that's very promising. And, um, you know, as in parallel with that, we wanted to um, 
so this was a, a dose escalation study. So we had a, it was a five dose level study. Um, we had three different dose levels of the WE1 inhibitor and we wanted to inquire um, as to which dose level was most effective in inhibiting uh, WE1 kinase activity. And so in the absence of being able to um, biopsy uh, pancreatic tumors pre and post treatment, we needed to use uh, an easily accessible surrogate uh, tissue. And so um, we'd done some preclinical studies looking at a variety of accessible uh, surrogate tissues and had decided that skin punch biopsies, looking at hair follicles and skin punch biopsies would be uh, the most feasible and, and practical and informative. Um, and so we're looking at, um, so what we do is we take a skin punch biopsy from the forearm or the back of the, of the scalp, uh, pre-WE1 inhibitor and then post-WE1 inhibitor, and we look for the levels of CD, uh, phosphorylated CDK1, which is the immediate downstream target of WE1. So this is an example of pre-WE1 uh, inhibitor. This is the you know, amount of CDK1 positivity we see. And this is post-WE1 inhibitor. This is at 150 milligrams, which is sort of our intermediate dose level for the WE1 inhibitor. And so this indicates that we do have engagement of, of the WE1 kinase by the agent, at least at this dose level. And interestingly, when we look at uh, two dose levels here, we see that, um, so we're looking, this is pre-WE1 inhibitor and post-WE1 inhibitor. Dose level one is more effective in inhibiting the WE1 kinase, at least in this readout, um, than dose level zero. Okay, so from this, um, you know, first of all, the promising overall survival suggests that the, we're not just, you know, improving local control here, but that we must be having an effect on systemic disease as well, or else these patients would likely be developing uh, metastases uh, by now. Um, we think that PD markers in skin punch biopsies can be used as, as a surrogate in this study. Um, and then we have ongoing studies that I'm not talking about today, assessing circulating tumor cells and exosomes as potential predictive markers of, of um, therapeutic efficacy. So that was all well and good to see the early laboratory studies finally come into a clinical trial, but you know, over back in the laboratory side of things, we were kind of figuring out, well, what do we do now? And uh, one of the things that I became interested in and continue to be interested in is novel combinations of agents targeting the DNA damage response. And so the, um, you know, sort of the, the overall rationale for combining these agents is that it could potentially, um, if we strategically select combinations of agents, it could potentially alleviate the need for cytotoxic chemotherapy in chemoradiation regimens and maybe be more effective uh, and maybe be less toxic and therefore provide a better therapeutic ratio. And so you'll see that one of the, and we've worked on a number of these combinations and one of the common themes for most of them is the inclusion of a PARP inhibitor. Um, and so that's largely just due to the fact that they're the most mature of all of the DNA damage response agents uh, in development. Um, the last time I checked, uh, there were three FDA-approved PARP inhibitors, um, alaparib, which is now linparza, voliparib, and talazoparib. And so all of these drugs inhibit the enzymatic activity of PARP, and that has functions in regulating homologous recombination, basic scission repair, alternative DNA repair pathways. 
But some of these drugs also have the ability to trap PARP on the chromatin. Um, and as you can imagine, um, the trapping of PARP, which is, would be a large adduct on the DNA, impedes DNA replication. And that's something that we've become interested in. And so this concept that trapping PARP on chromatin versus um, inhibiting its enzymatic activity has a, uh, is the most important mechanism for um, the cytotoxicity of these agents largely came from work that was initiated at the NCI in Yves Pommier's group. And some of their uh, original work showed, you know, that kind of led to this idea that trapping is a, is a key mechanism. Um, some of that work included findings that um, PARP inhibitors uh, produce greater cytotoxicity than a PARP deletion. Um, or if you delete PARP from cells, they become resistant to PARP inhibitors, presumably because you can't track the PARP on chromatin. We know now that the potency of, of the, uh, the trapping potency of PARP inhibitors correlates with cytotoxicity. And interestingly, the um, tolerability of these PARP inhibitors is inversely correlated with their trapping potency. So the most potent trapping agents are the least well tolerated. Okay, so one of the first combinations we um, were interested in was the combination of the WE and PARP inhibitor. And at the time, our rationale for this combination was, was based on the fact that we had found, and others, that when we inhibited WE1 kinase, it would cause inhibition of homologous recombination repair. And we knew that PARP inhibitors were preferentially effective in tumors that had um, mutations in genes that uh, regulated homologous recombination. So we reasoned that you know, maybe we could sort of pharmacologically create synthetic lethality in tumors that you know, didn't, have other, didn't otherwise have DNA uh, double-strand break repair mutations or defects. Um, so one of the first things that we looked at was the ability of the combination of the WE1 inhibitor and the PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, um, to radiosensitize in pancreatic cancer cells. And so I, I think it comes as no surprise that when you inhibit two key DNA repair pathways, that you get pretty profound radiosensitization, and that's the green line here. And so that produces radiosensitization that's greater than what you could achieve with either agent alone. Um, looking at in vivo um, pancreatic tumor xenograft models, um, in which we gave the um, WE1 inhibitor and the PARP inhibitor um, prior to ra each radiation fraction, uh, we found that the combination, uh, you know, similar to what we saw in vitro, in vitro produces very significant uh, radiosensitization of these xenografts. And uh, notable, we saw that 20% of the tumors treated with the combination of WE and PARP inhibitor and radiation actually failed to, to regrow following therapy. Um, so it, it was a pretty active combination. Um, so it was not unique to pancreatic cancer, um, and this is the part where I'll begin to diverge a little and tell you about some mechanistic work that uh, was done in lung cancer. So this is a KRAS mutant lung cancer model, um, similar to what I showed you in pancreatic cancer, 
the combination of the WE1 and PARP inhibitor produces a lot of radiosensitization, more than either agent alone. If we go to um, same model but in vivo uh, xenografts, here's the combination of the WE and PARP inhibitor plus radiation. Uh, we have a lot of tumor radiosensitization here, and you can compare that to either agent alone in uh, red and yellow. Um, and then radiation alone over here in, in white. So we wanted to start to tease out what the mechanism was. I've kind of alluded to thinking it's not the G2 checkpoint and maybe it's homologous recombination repair. Um, but we were specifically interested in a model that was put forward by Klaus Sorensen's group which suggested that um, the WE1 kinase through regulation of CDK um, could call it when we inhibited WE1 and hyperactivated cyclin-dependent kinase, that it would kind of create this futile cycle of aberrant origin firing. So you get too many replication origins firing. This consumes a lot of nucleotides to the point that nucleotides become exhausted and then you get replication stalling. And so we wondered if this might be related to radiosensitization by the WE1 inhibitor alone or WE1 inhibitor uh, in combination with PARP inhibitor. And so the, the way that we tried to tease this out was to rescue this mechanism by uh, uh, adding back exogenous nucleosides to cells, okay? So then that's going to prevent the nucleotide shortage, and it should relieve any um, replica DNA replication stress. Uh, so over here on the right, um, this, is, this is what I've shown you already. This is the radiosensitization that we get with the uh, WE1 inhibitor alone. So we get about a 1.4 enhancement of, of the radiation effect. Um, and then, likewise, in the other solid bars here, this is our radiosensitization with Olaparib. And then the combination of we and alaparib is greater than either alone. So when we included nucleosides uh, concurrent with our we and PARP inhibitor treatment, we completely rescue the radiosensitization by the we one inhibitor. So that seems to be all driven by nucleotide levels in the cells. Um, it wasn't surprising that for alaparib, nucleosides did not rescue the radiosensitization. We didn't anticipate that that was a nucleotide-dependent phenomenon. Uh, what was sort of surprising here is that when we added the PARP inhibitor, we no longer saw any rescue of the AZD1775 radiosensitization by, by the addition of nucleosides. And so we interpreted this as the PARP inhibitor must be doing something downstream of the nucleotides, nucleosides, um, to affect DNA replication um, and to cause the radiosensitization. And so based on what we had been reading about PARP trapping on chromatin in response to PARP inhibitors, we speculated that maybe that was trapped PARP on chromatin, which should not, even if you put back exogenous nucleosides, if trap is part, if, excuse me, if PARP is trapped on chromatin, that's gonna impede replication despite nucleotide levels. And so the, the first thing that we did was to um, actually try to measure whether um, PARP-1 was trapped on chromatin at radiation-induced DNA damage sites. 
which had not previously been shown. Um, and so this, in this assay, what we do is we look at the chromatin fraction um, in cells, and we look for PARP1 in the chromatin fraction. And so I'll point out here, um, when we quantitate these data, what we see is a, a small but reproducible increase in PARP1 bound to chromatin in response to olaparibin radiation or the combination of the we one inhibitor and olaparibin radiation. So this is one piece of evidence to begin to suggest that PARP trapping um, might have a mechanistic role uh, in this therapeutic combination. So to determine the contribution that the PARP trapping makes to the sensitization, we used uh, two strategies, which I'm showing here. The first was to knock out PARP1 with siRNA. So knocking out PARP1 is going to reduce the um, overall levels of PARP enzymatic activity. And you can see that here. If we look at poly-ADP ribose, which is catalyzed by PARP, the lack of poly-ADP ribose suggests that there's an overall reduction in PARP catalytic activity in cells. Um, and we should not be able to trap PARP on the chromatin because we have depleted PARP in the cells, so it can't be trapped. When we looked at radiosensitization under these conditions, with the WE1 inhibitor, uh, with non-specific siRNA, this is what I've shown you many times before, we got a 1.4 enhancement ratio. The PARP siRNA had a very modest effect on radiosensitization. And now, if we combine the PARP siRNA with, with the WE1 inhibitor, it doesn't potentiate WE1 inhibitor radiosensitization, um, like I've shown you before, with, with alacrid. So this, this was a distinct um, effect here. The uh, other strategy that we use over here on the right was to use voliparib, which is one of the least potent PARP trapping agents. And so um, on the bottom here, you can see that when we treat cells with voliparib, I think it's the third lane here, it does inhibit PARP catalytic activity. There's a reduction in poly-ADP ribose. That's similar to what we can achieve with the other uh, uh, PARP inhibitor, alaparib. Um, but what's different between these two agents is that the voliparib does not trap PARP1 on the chromatin, while olaparib does. And so when we went back and conducted our radiosensitization studies with voliparib, again, similar to what I showed you with the siRNA, where these are non-PARP trapping conditions, we no longer see potentiation of WE1 inhibitor-mediated radiosensitization. So all of this together suggests to us that um, PARP trapping is, is a required mechanism uh, for this combined sensitization that we see with the WE and the PARP inhibitor. Um, and so the DNA replication stress resulting from the PARP trapping, um, as well as the aberrant origin firing and the nucleotide depletion we get from the WE1 inhibitor seem to be uh, key mechanisms for, for radiosensitization. And this really got us interested more in targeting uh, DNA replication stress. Okay, so we kind of, you know, and this, this gets into our ongoing work now. Um, so we kind of, you know, rethought what our overall goals and hypotheses were um, on the basis of those mechanistic data. Um, and, and hypothesized that if replication stress is, is really the, the key target here, then more direct inhibition of 
DNA rep of targets within DNA replication might be more effective. And specifically, we hypothesized that uh, inhibition of ATR might be more effective than V1, given its more direct function in DNA replication. As a secondary hypothesis, uh, uh, we, we thought that since homologous recombination repair proteins are um, also involved in managing DNA replication stress, that this might be a more uh, effective strategy in HR-deficient cancers. And so as it turns out, homologous recombination repair status is relevant in pancreatic cancer. Um, pancreatic cancer is one of the only cancers um, besides ovarian and breast, although I think prostate is emerging now, that has a significant enrichment for a BRCA mutational signature. Um, and the, um, the genes that contribute to the signature are the usual suspects, uh, mutations in BRCA1 and 2 and PALB2, et cetera, are, are found um, at roughly, you know, a 20% frequency in, in pancreatic cancers. And so our current goals are to identify a combination of agents that target the DNA damage response that will simultaneously uh, uh, provide systemic and local therapy um, measured um, in our assays by cytotoxicity and radiosensitization. Um, and we reason that if it has preferential activity in HR-deficient cancers, that might be good because it could provide a therapeutic window. Uh, and really, we wanted to start to establish the preclinical data uh, to work toward our next clinical trial. And so um, we started with what we knew. We knew that the combination of we and PARP was a very uh, profound radiosensitizing strategy in pancreatic cancers. Um, we hadn't really observed a lot of activi activity in the absence of radiation on cytotoxicity, um, but we thought that was maybe because we were primarily focused before on homologous recombination repair proficient pancreatic cancers. And so the first thing that we did was to look for cytotoxicity in a matched pair of cell lines that were HR proficient over on the left, or HR deficient on the right. And so this was a model that we created by constructing them to express doxycycline-inducible rad 51 shRNA. And so you can see when we give cells doxycycline, the rad 51 goes away, and this effectively makes them HR uh, defective. Unfortunately, try as we did, um, the combination of the we one inhibitor with PARP inhibitor produced um, very little interaction on cytotoxicity. Uh, so this is our PARP inhibitor alone. I will point out, it was sort of a confirming uh, control, if you look at the x-axis here, uh, we do, in the HR-deficient cells, have a lot more sensitivity to a laparib as a single agent, as we would expect, but uh, the we one inhibitor does not really sensitize to a laparib. So we get a little effect in the HR-proficient cells and really no effect in the HR-deficient cells. So this was a no-go for us because it suggested that this was a combination that wouldn't be particularly effective in terms of systemic disease control. So we went back to our logic of thinking that if replication stress is the key target, then maybe targeting proteins more proximally involved in DNA replication uh, would be better. 
And so we, um, in these studies, looked at the combination of the ATR inhibitor uh, with olaparib and the same model system, the HR proficient on the left and the HR deficient on the right. Um, we were pleasantly um, surprised this time to find, uh, okay, so we look at olaparib alone in white in the HR proficient cells. If we add the ATR inhibitor to that, we get very good sensitization to olaparib. Uh, that was also the case over here in the HR deficient cells. We can really shift those survival curves by adding the ATR inhibitor to the olaparib. Um, and this was 72 hours concurrent treatment. Um, and then we grew the cells out in drug-free medium for, for survival. Um, so both the HR proficient and the deficient cells were sensitized to PARP inhibitor by ATR inhibitor, um, although we did see that it required much lower doses of PARP inhibitor in the HR deficient setting. Um, this was really synergistic. We did the um, synergism studies um, to show um, that there was synergy between the ATR and, and PARP inhibitor. Um, so that was criteria number one. It should be a combination that produces cytotoxicity because that might permit for systemic disease control. The second criteria is that our combination of agents needed to radiosensitize to improve local control. Same model system again. Um, in the HR proficient cells, uh, we get a 2.1 enhancement of radiosensitization by the combination of the ATR and PARP inhibitor. Uh, and we also get very good radiosensitization in the HR deficient cells with a 1.7 radiation enhancement ratio. So we uh, confirmed these studies. So, you know, sort of acknowledging that RAD51 depletion by shRNA may not be, you know, the most physiologically relevant condition. We wanted to confirm these studies in a spontaneous BRCA2 mutant model. And so um, uh, the CAPAN1 pancreatic cancer cell line has uh, this spontaneous BRCA2 mutation. And we were able to confirm uh, first in terms of the cytotoxicity that when we added the ATR inhibitor, to the olaparib, we again saw good sensitization in this BRCA2 mutant model. And likewise, when we looked at radiosensitization, there was nice radiosensitization um, by the combination of the ATR and PARP inhibitor. So one of the um, mechanistic things that um, started to emerge along the way is that uh, if we looked at the concentration responsiveness of, of PARP catalytic activity when we treated with PARP inhibitors, uh, what we saw is that PARP catalytic activity is inhibited in the 1 to 10 nanomolar range, so it's very sensitive. But in the HR proficient cells in particular, the concentrations of olaparib that we're using to produce cytotoxicity and sensitization we're way over here in the 3 to 10 micromolar range. And so it suggested to us, well, initially 10 years ago when we generated these data, it suggested that maybe it's just completely an off-target effect. Um, but what came to be known later is that this phenomenon happens with lots of PARP inhibitors. There's this disconnect between inhibition of PARP catalytic activity and cytotoxicity. Um, 
As we were working through the HR deficient setting, what we appreciated was that the concentrations of the PARP inhibitor that were required for cytotoxicity and sensitization in the HR deficient cells were more in line with those concentrations that we use to inhibit PARP catalytic activity. And so this sort of led us to our current working hypothesis that the, um, in the HR deficient setting, inhibition of PARP catalytic activity is sufficient for sensitization and cytotoxicity, but that PARP trapping, um, which happens only at higher concentrations, is required in the HR proficient cells. Um, and so we really wanted to, you know, figure out um, sort of what the consequences were of this PARP trapping. And the way that we, one of the ways that this, um, you know, it, the immediate consequence that you can think of that if PARP is trapped on the chromatin is it should impede DNA replication. And so we looked at ongoing DNA replication using a fiber combing assay. So this is an assay where we can label ongoing DNA replication forks. Um, the first label shows us our baseline DNA replication rate. And then we add a second label, and these both can be fluorescently stained for, um, that allows us to, we add the second label in combination with our uh, experimental agents of interest to allow us to see what effect they have on DNA replication. So under unperturbed conditions, you see that the first label and the second label produce approximately the same length of DNA fibers, or a ratio of these labels that is equal to approximately one. If we perturb DNA replication with an ATR inhibitor, as you would expect, the second label is very short because replication is stalling. And so we get a ratio um, of those labels that is less than one. What was new about these studies is that we looked at the effect of Olaparib on ongoing DNA replication and found that the Olaparib did inhibit that progression of, of, of the ongoing DNA replication fork, suggesting to us that PARP was being trapped on the chromatin and that that was impeding DNA replication. Okay. So we've also been trying to get at other ways that we can measure this phenomenon of trapping of PARP on the chromatin. And one of the things that we've done is to take a GFP-conjugated PARP1 uh, to express that in cells, and then on a single cell level to induce DNA damage. And you can see, I, I hope, that in these cells we have at 10 minutes after we induce this strip of DNA damage, right where you see the stripe, we have GFP PARP localization to that site, as you would expect. Um, under control conditions, within 40 minutes, that GFP-labeled PARP is dissociating from the damaged site. When we treat with Olaparib, however, at the 40-minute mark here, so we see that the initial localization of the PARP to the damaged site is similar under control or Olaparib-treated conditions. But as we look over time, in response to Olaparib, the GFP PARP remains associated with the DNA damage site, um, providing further evidence that it's getting trapped at this DNA damage site. 
Okay, so some of you are probably wondering why does she keep going on and on about heart trapping um, and why does all this mechanistic work matter? And so I, I've told you that the available PARP inhibitors have very different trapping efficacy. Talazoparib is the most potent trapping agent. Voliparib and niraparib are the least potent trapping agents. And so our working hypothesis is that trapping is required to sensitize homologous recombination repair proficient cells, and that only catalytic inhibition is required to sensitize the homologous recombination repair deficient cells. And so this is an idea that potentially could allow us to inform the use of the best PARP inhibitor based on homologous recombination repair status of tumor cells. And, and I included this quote here from an end of a, the end of a review article uh, uh, recently authored by Eve Pommier, Mark O'Connor, and Johan Devano uh, that I liked. Uh, mechanisms of action are not just something that is nice to have. They are fundamental for determining how a drug should be given to a patient in terms of dose and schedule for patient selection and for understanding drug resistance. And in this case, potentially for informing the appropriate choice of an agent. Okay, I'm going to skip over this slide so we have some time for questions. Um, overall conclusions, um, we think that combined ATR and PARP inhibitors have the potential to simultaneously treat both systemic and uh, local pancreatic cancer. Uh, we'd very much like to progress this to a phase one clinical trial, uh, either in locally advanced pancreatic cancer in combination with radiation or potentially in metastatic pancreatic cancer, which would be uh, without radiation. So the company has just uh, completed initial phase one studies, so there is a dose and schedule available of these agents that we might um, take into a clinical trial. Um, I talked about the idea that catalytic inhibition is sufficient for HR-deficient cancers, but that we need uh, uh, PARP trapping in HR-proficient and that this could inform the appropriate choice of PARP inhibitor and could uh, potentially improve the therapeutic ratio. And then back to the very beginning of my talk, um, the promising overall survival that we see with the V1 inhibitor and chemo radiation um, suggests that this is a, a good combination for potentially improving local and systemic disease control. Um, and this is actually our first priority at this point in terms of the next clinical trial. Um, we're proposing a randomized phase two clinical trial combining AZD 1775 with gemcitabine uh, radiation versus standard of care. Okay. So um, I just want to acknowledge uh, all the people in my laboratory, um, my longtime collaborators, Ted Lawrence and John Maybaum, uh, my clinical collaborators, and then uh, uh, my support, uh, including uh, support from AstraZeneca uh, and the NCI and my cancer center. Thank you. My first question is, the meeting went to every paper, every presenter presented a different HR signature. What's your preferred mechanism if you tell them which patients they're going to give it to? Uh, yeah, that's a tough question. I, I mean, at the moment, we're proposing a targeted sequencing array, but genomics is not really my thing. Um, so I guess what's doable for us at 
the moment might be a functional RAD51 assay. I mean, that's what we've done in our tumor xenografts, but it's quite cumbersome. But I, I think that that's an area where we need to do better in identifying those patients with HR deficiency. Yeah. If they have an HR deficiency, is it necessary? How much would you gain by giving a pulp inhibitor that doesn't trap? Could um, you give one that traps the one of them? Would it be a problem? Well, I, I, that's, that's a good point. So uh, my thinking is that, so trapping is, you know, sort of dose limiting, I think. The more potent trapping agents are more toxic. If the trapping is not a mechanism that an HR-deficient tumor cell cares about, let's say, then you might wind up limiting the dose that you can give based on a mechanism that's not important for the tumor cell. That's my thought. I'm a medical oncologist. In, in unstopped patients, um, the medical oncology community is moving, at least in many places, moving away from, from um, radiation for treatment of local advanced pancreatic cancer with new data that show that there's not there's no, no meaningful difference in survival, but you don't have to go to everyday radiation for, for six weeks if you have chemo compared with radiation. So the, the, the last slide focusing on, on radio sensitization, um, and do you think that that's a strategy for all patients, or do you think it's a strategy for, for patients for, with, um, uh, with, for some groups of patients, um, you know, given that given that we're not sure what role radiation plays in this population to begin with, how do you how do you design that study so to maximize the likelihood that you're going to have a positive outcome? Yeah, yeah. So I think you know the um, sort of the maybe dream trial would be a three arm trial where we have the chemo radiation with the we one inhibitor versus chemo radiation versus best standard of care or uh, fulfurinox or you know, best systemic agent. Um, I'm not. Have selected patients or in, in molecularly defined stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how you think the subgroup, the, the, the subgroups of, of different pancreatic cancer patients would come into play here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think our next trial will probably be <coughs> unselected patients because it's just a really for locally advanced pancreatic cancer. If you start selecting based on you know HR deficiency, for example, that's a really difficult trial to accrue patients. It's, it's already small numbers of patients that, you know, have locally advanced cancer. Most of them are metastatic when they get diagnosed, as you know. Um, you know, I, I guess I, I don't totally agree with the idea that radiation doesn't, you know, has, has a uh, lesser role in the management of locally advanced pancreatic cancer. Um, so maybe we can talk about those data. Uh, I was interested when uh, you're showing uh, the combination of PARP and MIG-1 inhibitor, and you're showing that in HR deficient cancers, so it only needs catalytic uh, inhibition mm -hmm. versus the trapping. But in combination with the we one inhibitor, it makes more sense to me when the PARP is trapped that you're, that you're getting uh, synergistic cytotoxicity with that because the replication is running into trapped PARP on the DNA. Mm -hmm. Have an idea of how those are interacting, the lower concentrations of How they interact. So I, I mean, I see it sort of as a as a, a a balance, and in a 
in a HR deficient cancer um, that isn't just HR deficient, but it's already compromised in its ability to deal with DNA replication stress. Um, and we know that you know, heart affects um, um, replication fork stability. So I think you, know, you just need a little more perturbation of, of the part and that potentially could give you a collapsed fork. Whereas in a HR proficient cancer that is you know, more proficient in being able to deal with replication stress, you might need more than just enzymatic inhibition of PARP and actually trapping it on the chromatin to um, you know, collapse the fork. Why do you think that some inhibitors are better trappers than others? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I guess it depends on who you read. Um, <laughs> so Yves Pommier has suggested that the um, differential trapping potency of the inhibitors has to do with their structures. And I believe that um, you know, the, the concept is that the PARP inhibitors with chemical structures that have a longer tail um, are the better trapping agents. Um, I think um, David Mag, who's probably with one of the um, competing pharmaceutical companies, has offered a differential explanation. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, part of the PARP trapping mechanism, um, in order for PARP to come off the chromatin, it has to have catalytic activity. Um, and so the catalytic activity and the trapping are you know, pretty closely connected. Um, and so others have you know, suggested that it's more just related to catalytic inhibition versus something special or unique about certain agents. When your ATR part inhibition written showed that it hits both proficient and deficient cells, mm -hmm. how toxic do you think that's going to be? Uh, in, in humans? Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you what I know about the, um, the uh, phase one clinical trial that's just uh, wrapping up. They are able to give a full-dose PARP inhibitor with a full monotherapy dose of ATR inhibitor, and it's tolerable. Um, why is that tolerable? I, you know, I, I don't know. We, we have to work out what the tumor cell selectivity is, I suppose. But it's reassuring that it, it has been a tolerable combination so far in humans and animals. You know, we one study clinical trial, the Kaplan lab curve is very impressive. There was a dose escalation. Right. So was it across the doses that you were getting a response? Yes, yeah, yeah. So this is all the doses. Um, you know, we escalated very quickly, went from dose level zero to one to two, and then kind of came back down fast. Um, and so a lot of the patients there are at dose level zero, which is 125 milligrams. Um, we'd like to be at dose level one, but Dose level zero doesn't look the best in terms of our PD marker, but, you know, it's a PD marker in hair follicles. I mean, maybe it accumulates in the tumor. I, I don't know. Um, so dose level one, you kept in mind, would you be stratified for just that? Set you look better? Well, ex better. except that we don't have a lot of patients <laughs> at dose level one, so there'd probably be some noise, but, yeah. Any other questions? Thank you very much, Meredith. Thank you.